It is Thursday, the 18th of June. Welcome to The Briefing. Today on the show, the bushfire recovery. Millions of you helped donate money to the bushfire victims, but has it gone to the people that need it? That's coming up in just a moment. Right now, I'm joined by Jan Fran for the big stories of the day. First to the United States, where the Atlanta police officer who fatally shot Rayshard Brooks has been charged with murder. Brooks was shot twice in the back during an attempted arrest after he was found asleep in his car at a Wendy's car park. Yeah, footage of that incident sparked another wave of protests in Atlanta and that Wendy's establishment was actually burnt down. Now, five days after the killing, the former officer has been charged with felony murder and that's a charge that doesn't require an intent to kill. The other police officer on the scene also faces three charges, including aggravated assault. Yeah, so big breaking news out of the US there. Come one, come all, ye Queenslanders, uh, because recruitment has actually kicked off for the state's first COVID-19 vaccine trial. Now, that study is taking place at the University of Queensland, and it's been described as the most promising in Australia. The issue of the vaccine, well, that would be a game changer for us. Um, We all know that if there's an effective vaccine, we will be able to have immunity to this virus and the chains of transmission in the community will stop. That's Deputy Chief Medical Officer Nick Coatsworth with some words of caution on the trials. Now, the reason um, this one is exciting is that it's shown to create potent antibodies which help us fight the disease. Yeah, and volunteers, well, the way it works is that volunteers will get two jabs 28 days apart starting on July 13. So we could know if it works as soon as August. Yeah, and they're looking for about 120 volunteers. There's another ugly turn in the Labor branch stacking scandal. I'm a so that's the audio from 60 Minutes of Adam Somyrak, the Victorian Labor MP. Now Federal Labor MP Anthony Byrne is caught up in it. A bunch of his text messages have been leaked. And in the messages, Byrne talks violently about a staffer and calls a former Labor MP corrupt. Yeah, Anthony Byrne has blamed the disgraced Victorian Minister um, Adam Somyrak for leaking the messages. And look, it's important to note that it's been claimed that the vision obtained by 60 Minutes was filmed in Anthony Byrne's office. So there does appear to be some heavy tit for tat going on there. A South Australian police officer has been stood down after sending vile messages to Melbourne lawyer and prominent South Sudanese community advocate Nayadol Nuon via Facebook. SA police say that an internal investigation is now underway. This comes after two officers are facing an inquiry over forcefully handcuffing a 28-year-old Indigenous man during an arrest in Adelaide earlier this week. And also this week, there was another police race scandal in New South Wales where it was revealed officers in an elite counter-terrorism unit had mocked an acknowledgement of country at their Christmas celebration last year. That outraged Indigenous leaders and the officers are now under investigation. I know sometimes when... I've, fortunately, I've never been in this situation myself, but when people receive really vile messages via Facebook or any other message service, they're often told to go to the police. And I guess this raises the question of what do you do when it's the police sending you vile messages like that? Good question. Now, if you had any hopes of getting your overseas holiday back on track anytime soon, well, you basically shouldn't. Qantas have cancelled all international flights until October. I do sadly think that in terms of you know, open tourist-related travel, in or out of Australia, 
that remains quite some distance off. That sounded more like next year, not this year, isn't it? I, I, honestly, Sabra, I think that is uh, more likely the case. That's Trade Minister Simon Birmingham there, who, look, he's probably ruined some people's day by saying that. But I was always just on the cautious side of this. I figured we wouldn't really be international travelling till next year anyway. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone was realistically hoping to get overseas anytime soon outside of the trans-Tasman bubble, which hopefully will happen soon. I guess we always have this magical continent to explore, though, don't we? I hope Australians use this time to travel across our magical continent. <laughs> Australia, the magical continent. I like it. I like it too. Although if you are from Victoria, you're not travel into SA anytime soon because the borders are still closed to Victorians. And why would you want to? Don't get too stressed that they won't let you into Adelaide. Why would you really want to go there? <laughs> Boom. Beef. I think the um, the South Australians responded with a tourism video of their own showing Dan Andrews exactly why one would want to go to South Australia. And it looked pretty good. It did look pretty good. I think South Australia is quite amazing. But, you know, I'm, I'm just whipping out the popcorn watching this beef happen. And UKPM Boris Johnson likes our chocolate, apparently. I want a world in which uh, we send you Marmite, you send us Vegemite, we send you penguins, and uh, you send us, uh, with reduced tariffs, these wonderful Arnott's Tim Tams. How long can the British people be deprived of the opportunity to uh, have uh, Arnott's Tim Tams at a reasonable price. That is the question of our times, isn't it? <laughs> How long can the British people be deprived of Tim Tams? Yeah, so that was Boris Johnson overnight announcing plans to push for a post-Brexit trade deal with Australia. Yeah, and, you know, coronavirus obviously has been the very big story this year, but the other one is that Britain is no longer part of the EU, and that's been since January 2020. So they now have this transition period where they're in this process of negotiating with everyone as to what a post-Brexit UK will look like, Australia included, obviously. Yeah, and apart from the, you know, exciting possibilities of trading Tim Tams and Penguins, the other exciting thing is that it could open up visas for Australians to live and work in the UK more easily. Yeah, that's the other thing. Do we want more Marmite? That's my question. Well, probably not. It's a real crowd splitter, that one. <laughs> All right, thanks, Jam. We'll catch you tomorrow. In a moment, Annika Smethurst will join us as we look at the bushfire recovery effort and if the help's getting to the people that really need it. All right, it's time to brief you on the bushfire recovery effort. Before the pandemic, the devastation and the smoke from the bushfires was all-consuming. Hey, Tom, yes, over 18.6 million hectares of land were burnt, 33 people were killed and almost 6,000 buildings were destroyed. Along with the personal pain, it also caused a lot of political tension. I didn't even know he was coming. So, to be honest with you, the locals probably gave him the welcome that he, he probably deserved. I'm only shaking your hand if you give more funding to our RFS. We need yeah, more help. No liberal votes. You're out, son. You are out. You're not welcome, you You from the media, tell the Prime Minister to go and get from Nelligan. We really enjoy doing this head. So you can hear some of the tension it caused there. And in just over two weeks, we're going to find out how... Some of the people in those hardest hit areas are feeling about the response to the bushfire disaster. There's going to be a by-election in Eden Monero on the south coast of New South Wales where voters will go to the polls. 
Annika, can you start by explaining what a by-election is? Sure. So one federal MP who was called Mike Kelly, he's quit. He um, is unwell. He used to be in the army and he's got a few health issues. So he stood down before election day, which means everybody who lives in Eden Monero, about 100,000 people, will get a chance to vote in a new member. Now, it's a really interesting seat, Eden Monero, because it usually, up until recently, always goes with the government. So it's a really good predictor of who's going to win. If the people vote for a Liberal MP, usually we get a Liberal government and vice versa. At the moment, it's a Labor MP standing down. Both sides want to play underdogs. They don't want to put too much pressure on this. But I guess it's the first chance to see what people in that hard hit area of Eden Monaro, which is the south coast of New South Wales, how they feel the recovery is gone. And it also might give us some indication of how people are feeling the government's reacted to the pandemic. Yeah, it should be really interesting. Um, Let's find out how people on the ground in that seat are feeling right now and and how their sentiments might play out at the by-election. Dan Tarasenko is a free-range chicken farmer and he lives near Cabago, which was one of the hardest-hit towns. He managed to save his house, but he lost half his sheds, loads of livestock and a lot of fencing. Um, They also haven't been able to get back to business selling chickens, so he says they're down a million dollars. Here he is describing what it was like on the day when the fire came through. I woke up the morning of. Um, we we had embers falling the day before, so we knew something was going to happen, but you know, no one thought it would be this big. And then the morning of, you know, I'm looking at a about 40 kilometres of fire front to the west of me, and I, I just sort of you know took one look. I'll see it by myself. My family won't hear, and decided you know abandon the place and head into Bermagui and, and see if I can help out there. So I left early. Um, I had two neighbours that stayed and both ended up in ICU in, in Sydney. So, yeah, like we our, our street, I think we lost three quarters of the homes in our street. The noise, the circus after, um, look, honestly, it's been good because the media attention and things like that was just just huge and the, the private support, like everyone's talking about the charities and things like that and the, the money that came through just from private donations, like, you know, the, the Australian public yeah really really stepped up and a lot of people have gotten a lot of help but there there have been a lot that just can't access that help or or just can't be bothered fighting the the bureaucrats so you know yeah we, we did have a lot of attention for the first month or so and then you know obviously there's been some other problems with the world and things have gotten a little quiet so that was Dan explaining what it's been like for the community from the time the fire hit right through to now through their recovery and especially with that double issue of the pandemic. We also asked him for his thoughts on the upcoming by-election and how the bushfire recovery might play into that. The Labor candidate um, I, I think is very well well liked and respected down here. Um, Christy McBain, she certainly helped us in our in our business with some some difficulties around council. Um, and then Fiona, the Liberal member, is actually quite accomplished as well. So we're fortunate. Like, we actually do have two really good candidates. Just the sentiment on the ground. There's a lot of blame. You know, a lot of people are, are blaming the Liberals and inaction on climate change. And then there's a lot of people blaming the left side of politics for, you know, inaction on you know, like we, we have a lot of forestry management issues down here. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that fires like this will happen when there's when there's fuel loads. So quite an interesting election. I just couldn't couldn't predict what would happen. Okay, let's get a bigger picture now from an ABC journalist who's been travelling through those bushfire ravished areas, filing a series of unbelievable reports on how that recovery effort is going. 
Yeah, it's the ABC's National Regional Affairs reporter, Anna Henderson, who joins us. Can you give us the visual? What have you seen in these communities? Yeah, look, the first thing that really struck uh, me and my colleague Ben Deacon from ABC when we went down there, just when this pandemic restrictions were starting to lift, that it's just like a different country. The way it feels when you hit the fire zone, when you hit the tree line where it starts to get burnt out is just like you're in a different place and the language people are using, the experiences they've had, um, how they see the world at the moment, it's just so different to everywhere else in Australia. Everybody in those zones is talking about um, the relief efforts that they've tried to access, their friends and family who are in a worse position than they are. You see these caravans kind of dotted through the landscape as you enter different towns and you just really get a sense that this is an area of Australia that uh, through the pandemic was really quite cut off and that there's this invisible issue that's very real to people who live there. But for a lot of the rest of the country, it's just, it hasn't been at the focus of reporting. There's a lot of goodwill uh, and there's uh, over months and months, there've been a lot of people trying to help. Uh, But in the end, there are all these people who are still living in this really basic situation uh, in in caravans and in tents uh, and, and they're not getting the help And at this point, it's kind of getting quite desperate. What's the overall feeling? Are people feel like they're getting anywhere near enough support? There was two billion pledged by the government. Does it feel like any of that's hit the ground? It definitely does, Tom. I think there are certainly people who uh, I would say are probably in a better position in that they... uh, understand technology. They've got a really good support system around them. They live in town so they can walk or drive to, you know, access the services or to go and get the help and get a face-to-face consultation with the charity. Uh, And they are absolutely getting assistance. The charities are moving tens of thousands of dollars out the door to individual people. It's when you get further outside of the towns and people's situation is more complicated. They've chosen to live off the grid. They've chosen to live without a lot of technology. They don't have mobile reception. Their houses were completely destroyed. And in some cases, so were almost all of their vehicles. They were already really on the poverty line. And now the only thing of value that they had, their house, their shelter, and everything that's tied up in that about their sense of self-worth is gone. And now they're just living day to day in this situation where it's like the fire only happened last week they're not able to move on. And I think this is something that is starting to be realised by some of the the government and other support people out there. But for the people who've seen this every day, they might be like the local publican or the post office manager or other people in communities who've seen the people that they recognise over the years become less recognisable because they're effectively camping for six months and increasingly stressed and traumatised by the experience. I think that's where it's really obvious that the help is missing the mark. And in some of your reporting recently, something that really struck me and you touched on it there was, you know, people living in caravans and, and not wanting to invite the television, your crews into their home because of that lack of pride about their living conditions. So I just wondered if you could touch on sort of the the social or mental health impact this is having on people. I think, Annika, um, people were just physically ravaged by the experience and, you know, they couldn't recognise themselves as they saw themselves rarely in the mirror now when they had their once a week shower or managed to get into town or heard through the Bush Telegraph about, you know, a food hamper freebie they might be able to get. And there's a sort of 
support network that's just um, sprung up uh, organically in the communities to try and help these people. Um, and it might be like the local butcher in Eden who um, has been doing all this extra work outside of her six-day-a-week job plus six kids. Or in different communities, you hear a similar story where people in town are trying to navigate the services for people, make the applications for them, let governments know they're out there because they're kind of invisible to some of these services. Uh, but at the same time, there's this lack of dignity that people keep talking about. You know, they don't feel like they're cared about, that they're part of this society in a way. They just feel completely neglected. And a moment ago, we heard some of those frustrations from locals who basically slagged off the Prime Minister when he came to visit bushfire-affected communities. Does that frustration still exist? And how do you think that will play out at the upcoming by-election? It's interesting. Quite a few of the people I spoke to who are literally living in a tent or a caravan with a shovel at the door, they're still getting the comments of the government and of the National Bushfire Recovery Agency coordinator, Andrew Colvin. They're somehow getting this information fed through to them. They're hearing this stuff. Um, So they first heard Scott Morrison earlier in the year in the wake of all that controversy and the incredibly prickly reception he was getting in some places saying, you know, whatever it takes, we're going to help you. So they sit in their situation now and say, hard to sort of believe that 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 is actually being turned into action. And then further, you know, Andrew Colvin a few weeks ago uh, was asked about the situation on the ground and said that he felt that um, the briefings to him were that everybody did have access or had been offered temporary accommodation. So people on the ground to hear that comment and haven't had that experience again feel either like we are not part of the society that you're talking about or that you know, you're incredibly poorly briefed in their view. Anna, a lot of the frustrations were about, I guess, state versus federal, which is often blamed for a lot of um, issues in Australia, the quirk that who is actually responsible. And even through some of the um, inquiries we've had recently, you know, should uh, backburning, for example, be nationally run or state run and, and what happens when a fire crosses borders? Do people make that differentiation on the ground? Is there sort of um, a level of frustration at different tiers of government or is it just an overarching sort of anger at authorities? (laughs) It's definitely that. Um, But there's also... I just think um, sometimes, like growing up in the country myself, country people are kind of seen as as kind of mugs a little bit politically and perhaps not as engaged in the political process. To use a, a phrase, um, their bullshit detector is pretty strong. <laughs> uh, and so when politicians go out and and these headlines that have you know permeated the bushfire recovery process this year about all the grand statements that governments have made, well, people in these communities see the outcomes and then they make their call. There is a real uh, belief on the ground, uh, rightly or wrongly, that a lot of these uh, promises from government just just haven't materialised for the communities yet. While there is this uh, scepticism about federal and state issues, there's also a real wish on the ground that there was more power given on a local level, whether it's from government or management of fire, so that people can implement the plans that communities have organised and worked on over many years to try and protect the place that is theirs. That was Anna Henderson from the ABC. Um, Annika, it sounds like a lot of people are getting the help they need, but it's the people living on the fringes of those communities that maybe aren't tech savvy or aren't used to 
reaching out for help that are really struggling to move forward. Yeah, it sounds like the tale of two different cities, doesn't it? One group that seemed to be recovering and the money seems to be there, but it's about directing it to the right people. And I don't know about our listeners, but I felt incredibly frustrated not knowing what to do. So it it seems like we don't need to donate any more money, but maybe we need to lobby our local MPs or, or start really getting that focus back on those areas so that the money goes where it needs to. That's it for today's episode of The Briefing. Tomorrow will be really interesting. We're taking a deep dive on the voluntary assisted dying laws. Tomorrow marks one year since they've been in place in Victoria. Um, They'll come in soon in WA. So the big question is what's happening in the rest of the country and how have the laws in Victoria worked so far? A Podcast One production.